I am really excited to be here this morning and get a chance to talk to you again. And I'm, I'm really excited about this new series, You Could Be Next. I want to give you a quick history of how this series came up and, and what it really means. Um, as we, you know, we have all kinds of meetings during the week. We have small groups that meet together. We have the crash course, our membership meeting uh, course, and we have K2U on Wednesday nights where people get together in smaller groups to study the Bible more or, you know, learn more about K2. And oftentimes we have times of sharing where we ask people, tell us your story. What, what, you know, how did you end up where you are right now? And, and I remember a couple of months ago, we got together as a management team and and uh, we were just so overwhelmed by your stories. And you think, man, there is so many unbelievably cool stories out there. And every one of you has a unique life story. Every one of you has unique experiences that you have to share and that, that are so valuable to share with each other. And, and we just sat there. We were so blessed by the stories that we were hearing and so encouraged. And we said, we have got to find a way to to tell people stories or to give people an opportunity to, to share their story with K2. And so we thought, okay, how can we, how can we do that in a, in a series? And so we thought, man, there's so many cool personal stories in the Bible, so many characters that we maybe don't talk about on a regular basis on Sunday mornings. Some we do and, and some we don't. There's a lot of obscure characters in the Bible with really cool stories and their own personal individual walk with God. And what they learned about God and, and how they walked with him through life. And so we thought, man, why don't we combine that? Why don't we find some, some or take some people's stories, some life stories from the Bible, look at it together and, and see what, how they lived with God, what they learned, and then combine that with a K2 story. And so that's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. Actually, right now I don't know how many weeks it is. I should, but I don't. And so that's why it's called You Could Be Next, because you could be next to tell your story. And we would love to hear it. And so this morning, I get an opportunity. I got to pick who I, who I got to talk about this morning um, out of the Bible. And uh, before I, I go there, I want to ask you a question. And this is not a rhetoric question. I actually want answers from you. So you can just yell those out, all right? Imagine you have one wish that's going to be granted to you. Let's say a genie, or better God, appears and says, all right. Yeah, makes sense. We're a church, so we'll make it count. <laughs> so let's say he comes to you and says, one wish, and it's yours. What would you ask for right away? What comes to mind? What would you ask for? Moral choices, please. What, what comes to mind? <laughs> what? World peace. Nice. Have you won a beauty contest yet? <laughs> no? <laughs> you could have. What else comes to mind? Salvation. What else? World Cup tickets? Yeah, nice. What else? Come on, I know you. something came to mind. What was it? Health, Health? great. Wisdom. Wisdom, yeah, right. You know where I'm going, don't you? Yes. An Olympic gold medal. An Olympic gold medal, yes. Okay, so we, we all have wishes, don't we? And I'm sure a lot of them are a lot, a lot deeper than the, some that we've heard. We all have a wish. You know, there was a guy who walked across, along the, the beach, uh, beaches of California one day, and all of a sudden he stumbled across something in the sand, and it was a little, a little old lamp. And so he, he brushed off the sand of it, and lo and behold, a little genie came out. And this was not a three-wish genie. It was a one-wish genie. 
and looks at the guy and says, man, you got a wish. You found me. You rubbed me out of this lamp. What's your wish? And he, totally unexpected, he, he sings and he sings. He said, you know what? I have always wanted to go to Hawaii. I've never been able to go. I'm, I'm deathly afraid of flying and, and I get super seasick, so I just haven't gotten there. I, it's my deepest wish is I want to go and, and spend some time in Hawaii. Why don't you build a bridge for me from L.A. straight to Hawaii so I can drive? And the genie looks at him and says, wow, that's unexpected. But seriously, that, that is just out of the question. That just uh, is beyond the scope of what I can do. Think of all the logistics involved. And that, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to take a rain check on this. So wh- what's your second wish? And he goes, hmm. Well, you know, my wife always says I don't understand her. And I'm, I, I misinterpret things. So... Here's what I want. I really, I want to understand my wife. I want to know why she cries when she cries. I, I want to understand what's going on in her brain. I want to know what she really means when she says fine or nothing. And I, I want to understand women and I want to make her happy. And the genie goes, well, how many lanes did you want on that bridge? <laughs> yeah. So, and you're thinking, where is he going with this? <laughs> That's a good question. Let me think. <laughs> One wish. The person I'm going to talk about this morning actually had that come true. God appeared to him and said, you have a wish. And I'm going to make that wish true. What is it? The guy I'm talking about is King Solomon. Who's heard of King Solomon? Good. A lot of you. King Solomon, the son of King David. He was his 10th son, in fact. And King David, you might have heard of. We've referred to him here before, I'm sure. He's the greatest king in Jewish history. And Solomon was his 10th son, which is unusual for a 10th son of a king to be his successor. He was the son of Beersheba. And David, Bathsheba is the woman that David committed adultery with and then had her husband killed to cover it up. He was her son. That whole, that's a whole other story for another day. And Solomon became king in a hurry. What had happened is David had gotten old and fragile and his, his health was failing. And one of his sons, Adoniah, I think is how you pronounce it, said, you know what, I'm going to grab this opportunity and I'm going to announce myself king. So he got some of the influential uh, advisors and, and politicians of the time to support him. And he had a little ceremony in secret where he was made king of Israel to succeed his father David. David had no idea this was going on. Beersheba heard about it and here mothers right they fight like lions for their kids and she said no David had promised my son Solomon to be king this can't happen so she goes in to to David's chamber and says King David you promised that my son would be king this is what just happened you have to do something and so he did so he got uh, the prophet Nathan to come in and, and, and some of his advisors they brought Solomon in and they anointed him right there made him king and then David had his heralds go out with trumpets and announce to Israel that Solomon would be king so it all happened in a hurry but he won out over his brother Adoniah who then begged for mercy and for his life to be spared So he became king. And shortly after that, God appeared to him. God appeared to Solomon saying, Solomon, you're my man. You're my man, my king for my people. 
What do you want? Here's your wish. And here's, here's the story. Here's the wish. He said, what do you want, Solomon, from me? Anything you ask will be yours. So Solomon thinks about this. And this is what he asked God. He said, give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between what right and wrong. Really remarkable, I think. Here's a young man who's just made king over his people. And his thought is, he, first of all, he refers to himself as a young man in this kind of powerful position as God's servant. I love that. He says, I'm your servant. Give me a discerning heart. That's what he asks for. So that I can, he says, not that he, he doesn't say that I can govern my nation and my people, but that I can govern your people. So he asks for a discerning heart, for wisdom, to know right from wrong and to make the right decisions and to lead God's people in a way that honors God. Wow. I said, that would have not been my wish. (laughs) It should have been. I wouldn't have, I don't think. This was Solomon's wish. And God was so impressed with this young man's wish. And he said, you know what? Now that you've asked for that, first of all, good choice, son. (laughs) Now that you've asked for this, I will also give you great wealth and great honor. And then God says this to him. He says, I will give you all this. I will grant you your wish and I will give you wealth and honor if, God said, if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as your father David did. Which is interesting. David, who committed adultery, even murder, and God says he walked in my way, which just shows God's incredible grace. But he says, walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as your father David did, and I will give you a long life. And this goes right along with what David says to Solomon after he had Solomon anointed as his successor. In Kings, 1 Kings chapter 2, David gives his son a charge, kind of passing on the mantle or the scepter. He says, okay, Solomon, this is yours now, but with it comes great responsibility. And this is what, he, what David charges his son with, which sounds very similar to what God tells Solomon. So David says to him, son, so be strong. Show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires, which I find so interesting. He says, be strong, be a strong king, and show that you're a man by following and obeying God. See, in our culture, and I'm sure in the macho culture back then, a man was strong by being independent and and not by relying on the crutch of a God, right? But he says, you're strong, and you're showing yourself a man By observing what the Lord your God requires. And David continues and says, walk in his ways and keep his decrees and commands, his laws and requirements as written in the law of Moses. So that you will prosper in all you do wherever you go. And then Solomon set out as the new young king of Israel committed to following God and leading his people. The first thing he does is building God a temple in Jerusalem. And to this day, the nation of Israel will refer to, the, to Solomon's temple just with awe and reverence. He built a magnificent temple in the center of Jerusalem, a place that would honor God, a, a place of worship for God, to God. And then next, he built a palace for himself. And we'll look into that in a little bit, a little bit later. But Solomon was a young man who had absolutely everything 
any man would ever want. And most women, with one exception. He had everything anyone would ever want. And today I made the day of W's. So I have four things that Solomon had in his life that really made him the envy of every man. He had wisdom. He had wins. W-I-N-S. A lot of success. He had wins. So I couldn't take success because I didn't have a W. So he had wisdom and wins. He had wealth. And he had women. All right? He had wisdom, wins, wealth, and women. And you would think, looking at Solomon's life, the wisdom he had, the incredible wealth, the success, the wins that he had in his life, and the women that he surrounded himself with, and you would think, well, there's a happy man if I've ever seen one. I mean, he should have been the happiest man that ever walked on the face of this planet. And you would think so until you come to a book in the Bible called Ecclesiastes, which is a book that Solomon wrote where he describes his pursuits in life, his pursuits of wisdom, of, of success, of wins, of, of wealth, and of women and pleasures, and the conclusions that he came to. And I just want to take you quickly to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And read the first 11 verses with you. We're going to read quite a bit today. But it's story time, so that's all right. So Ecclesiastes chapter 1, you will have it up on the screen. The words of the teacher, he's referring to himself as his teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now there's a guy you want to hang out with. eh? Have a good time. (laughs) He goes on, what does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old. And even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Don't you want to spend some time with this cheerful fella? (laughs) He had everything, everything you and I would want to have. And this is the conclusion he comes to. So I want to look at these four areas in his life, the wisdom, the winds, the wealth, and the women, and see what, what happened in his life in these areas that he came to this conclusion. To to illustrate his wisdom, the Bible tells us one story of his reign where people would come to him because they they would hear of his unbelievable wisdom and they would come to him for judgment and say, please, we have this conflict. Please help us solve this. And one time, two women came to him and they brought one baby. There were two prostitutes who both had had given birth to, to a son. 
And one morning, one of them woke up, and, and they, they lived in the same house, and one of them woke up and had her dead son next to her, thinking that she must have rolled over him at night and, and, and killed him. And she was mourning, and, and later on she took a closer look and said, well, wait, this isn't my son. And she knew this other lady had given birth to, and she went and said, well, that, that is my son. And so what had happened, what she assumed is that she had actually accidentally killed her son and then at night come and swapped him out and pretended this was hers. And so they had a bitter fight about who really was the mother of this child. And this was before CSI and DNA. And so they said, how are we going to fix this? So they went to Solomon. They, they had not went to Solomon and said, Solomon, here's the issue. Both of them claimed, no, this is my son. No, this is my son. So he said, okay, give me that baby. And then he told one of his servants, bring me the sharpest, sharpest sword you can find. So he took that baby by one leg and said, you know what? If you guys can't figure this out, we're going to split him in half. And each one of you gets a half. And then, you know, then we'll have this solved. And he gets ready to... And, and the real mother, in an instant, dropped on her knees and begged for saying, Now, don't, don't do that. Give her the baby. Let her raise. I'd rather him alive and she raise him than you do this. And he said, All right, fine. I think this is your son. <laughs> and he gave him to the mom begging for his life. And so this is just a story to illustrate how he, how he solved difficult issues. He knew how to get out of a pickle in his wisdom. But you know what? Apparently the wisdom that God had given him wasn't, wasn't quite enough. Let's go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And I want to read to you what, he comes, what conclusion he comes to when it comes to wisdom. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we're going to read verses 12 to 18. It says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under heaven. What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless. A chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. I thought to myself, look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Here's a man who had been given all wisdom. And it says he devoted himself to more knowledge and more understanding, prided himself in, in knowing more than any other king before him and, and still pursuing more. And it seems to me that one problem that Solomon seemed to have was always wanting more. God had already blessed him with wisdom, but he devoted his life to, to the pursuit of more wisdom. And it seems that Solomon placed his quest for knowledge and wisdom above his quest for seeking God and seeking his creator. It seems that he placed the quest for knowledge and wisdom above in priority, above his God, whom he had committed to following. And one thing we can learn from, from Solomon is that wisdom, as good as wisdom is, and wisdom is great, and knowledge and education and understanding is a gift that God has given us, and I think he's created in us a, a curiosity to know more, and, and to know more about the world we live in so that we can know more about him. 
But here's the deal. Wisdom and knowledge outside our relationship with God or placed in priority above our relationship with God will become meaningless. Will become meaningless. Wisdom to Solomon, who had all wisdom, became meaningless. The second W is wins. It's wins. And you know, Solomon became the greatest king of all. He was greater in wisdom, in wealth, in power than anybody. So he beat out anybody. He was on the top of the ladder that he could climb. And this is what he has to say in Ecclesiastes chapter 4 about that. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 16. He says, Better a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship, or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived and walked under the sun followed the youth, the king's successor. There was no end to all the people who were before them. But those who came later were not pleased with the successor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind seems to me like he's describing his life and his ascent from a young man who was an unlikely successor to the king, who, but who was passionate and, and, and was followed and people were excited about him. But something happened between his youth as a young king and now describing himself as an old foolish king who no longer knows how to take warning. Something happened and, and all the success he had as in, in climbing that ladder to the greatest king ever, wasn't all it was cracked up to be for him. What I read here in him is a lot of disillusionment, and it seems like a lot of disappointment with himself. Doesn't it sound like that? It sounds to me when I read this, and him describing himself as a young king and now as a foolish old king, that he almost wishes he could go back there. That he sits and says, man, I wish I could do this all over again and do it right. I wish I could do it all over again and submit more to God. You know, he's clearly in the position that he is in as king of Israel. Why? Because God put him there. He is the king of Israel because that was God's plan for his life. So that's not the question. The problem is that the position and the career that he had, that God had given him and blessed him with, had apparently become more important than the God who had called him into that position. His, his status as the, as the greatest and wealthiest and most successful king had taken priority over submitting to God. And you know, the same it's true for us. It's true for you and me. Career and position isn't bad at all. In fact, God has plans for us. He has certain plans for us. He gives us passions to pursue certain things as an occupation. And he blesses us with employment and with careers. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is just like with wisdom. When our life centers around our status and our success, when life centers around our position and our career, Instead of our creator, when it takes priority over our relationship with him, 
our positions and our careers will become meaningless. Just like being king became meaningless to Solomon. And I love how he actually describes this here in the end. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I, I couldn't think of a, of a better word picture for something that is so all-consuming, never-ending, and can never be accomplished. Chasing after the wind. Chasing, running after something with all your strength and energy and passion. You give yourself to something wholeheartedly that can never be accomplished. That's how he describes his pursuit of wisdom and of success. And then the third one, the third W, wealth. Solomon was king greater in wealth than any king before him. Actually, in, in First Kings, we have a great description of his wealth. Um, I'm not sure that we have this on the screen, um, but we might. It's First Kings chapter 10, verses 23 to 27. I just want to read this to you, the way his wealth was described. Chapter 10 in First Kings, verses 23 to 27. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift. Articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. He had built cities... <laughs> To keep all his chariots in order, all right? Cities for his chariots. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. I love that. He made silver as common as stones in Jerusalem. That was Solomon's wealth. And this is what he says in Ecclesiastes, again, chapter 5. Verses 10 to 15. This is what he said about his wealth. In chapter 5, verse 10 following, Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they, are they to the owner except to feast on his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much, but the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner. This is Solomon saying, who, who built cities to hoard his chariots, all right? Um, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there's nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This, too, is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. All his wealth had become meaningless to him. Again, his, his wealth, with, which wealth in itself and having money and having blessings isn't wrong or ungodly at all. It's, it's what, it, what we do with it and what it does to our hearts. 
And we see in Solomon's life what his wealth did to his heart. I told you that he built a temple, right? First thing he did as a king, a majestic temple for God. You know what he did right after that? He built an even more majestic palace for himself. The temple took seven years to build. His, temple, uh, his palace took 13 years to build. Right there we see the switch in priority. His wealth and what it did for him became more important than what he could do for his God. And it became meaningless. Now God had told him, I will bless you with wealth. So again, the wealth itself was not the problem. In fact, to the world around Israel, it was a sign of that this is my people. This was God said, this is my people. I bless them. And actually we see kings, surrounding kings. Uh, Queen Sheba came up to Jerusalem to meet Solomon because she had heard of his incredible wealth and wisdom and said, man, if, if your God blesses you like this, I need to know that God. So the, the blessings that God poured out over Solomon and Israel were part of, of, of helping people point to God. So it's nothing wrong in itself. But what we see here is that the wealth became more important to Solomon than the one who had provided it for him. And it became meaningless, completely meaningless. Are you starting to see a pattern here? So let's get to the fourth one, my favorite. Women. No. Now, ladies, don't check out here because I'm sure... That what this really stands for is for Solomon's pursuit of pleasures. And it went beyond women. And I know we all pursue pleasures in different areas. So I just had to find a W word. And there's a lot of women in his life. <laughs> Let me just tell you. First Kings chapter 11, we read about this. And this is right after we're told in chapter 10, we get a list of all the things that God blessed Solomon with materially. And then... Chapter 11 starts out like this. So here, this is all that Solomon had and that God blessed Solomon with. And then it goes, King Solomon. However, in contrast to all the blessings that God put out on Solomon, however, he loved many foreign women. Now, I love a foreign woman. She's French. <laughs> but only one. Now, let me just tell you, when Kings talks about him loving many foreign women, it's a slight understatement. Actually, it's, it's the understatement of all of human history. Because he loved 700 women that he was married to, plus 300 concubines. Hey? Even for this state, that's a lot. <laughs> all right? I'm sorry. I, did I just say that out loud? Okay. Whoa. Ble no, no. Okay. Blame it on me being German, please. That was totally insensitive. Anyway. Understatement of the century, he loved many foreign women, a thousand, okay? He literally had a whole palace for his women and concubines. So I think, looking at these four areas, we, we see a pattern here. We see, I, I see a slightly obsessive tendency in, in Solomon's life, don't you? He has all these things he's being blessed with. And what I see in each area... God says, here, I give you wisdom. Not enough. More, more, more. I make you the greatest. Not enough. More, more, more. I give you wealth. Not enough. I need more, more, more. Here, I give you a few wives. Not enough. I need a thousand. <laughs> All right? Slightly obsessive tendencies. And this is what 
King, David, King Solomon has to say about his pursuit of pleasures in chapter 2 of Ecclesiastes. It says in verse 1 of chapter 2, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. Or he sure did that. But that also proved to be meaningless. And then he continues in verses 10 and 11. I denied myself nothing my eyes desires. No joke. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. King Solomon, who had handed everything to him, everything that his culture and our culture today tells us would make us happy in every regard that we could possibly think about, comes away after all of that and, and pursuing more of all of that, saying, it is all meaningless. Nothing has been gained under the sun. In fact, his pursuit of pleasures led him away from his pursuit of God. I mean, go back to 1 Kings one more time, chapter 11. We read this about his pursuit of, of all these women. In chapter 11, verse 2, it starts out, But Jehosheba, the daughter of King Jeroboam, uh, that's not right. Oh, I'm in 2 Kings. Sorry. 1 Kings 11, Solomon's wives, verses 2 and 6. They were his wives. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Remember in the beginning... The charge that David gave his son of to follow in the commands of the, of the Lord. And then the, the condition that God gave him, I will bless you with all these things if you live in my command, if you stay in relationship with me. And this is what happened. His pursuit of, of, of seeking pleasure took priority over his pursuit and devotion of God who had blessed him with everything you could think of. And doesn't that reflect our culture? I think this one more than maybe the others reflects our culture so much. I mean, if I look at, at, at our culture and entertainment industry and everything out there, everything screams at us, pursue pleasures and pursue your happiness and whatever, whatever makes you happy, go after. Isn't that true? That, that our lives really center around providing for our pleasures. Our, our life isn't around centering, providing for our needs anymore for most of us. Our life centers around providing for our pleasures and, and our leisure has taken precedence over God in our lives. 
pleasure and the relationships that he sought outside of his relationship with God led him away. And what he came away with is that it's all meaningless. It is all meaningless. And the word that he uses here all the time, meaningless, literally the the root of that word means a vapor, (laughs) a, a breath. And I love that picture. It's a vapor breath or, or like a cloud of smoke. It's here now and then gone forever. When I was in college and seminary, you know, I had to write a lot of papers. And they, back then, I don't know if they still do this, they give you a certain number of pages that you have to write. So write a book study on the word propitiation and it has to be 30 pages. My problem was that I was usually done with everything I wanted to say, well short of the required numbers of pages. <laughs> And so you know what I would do then? I would do what I called blowing smoke. All right? So I would fill another five to six pages with, with just fluff, just words to kind of blow things up and make them sound a little bit better. Nothing of substance whatsoever, but it just kind of blew it up a little bit. It, but it was of no value as it came to that paper. And that's, that's what I think of when I see this word meaningless. It's nothing of of value, really what it means with being here now and then gone forever, nothing of lasting value. Nothing of lasting value. His wisdom, his success, his wins, his, his wealth, and his women, his, his pursuit of pleasure was of no lasting value. And yet, those are the very things that all of us oftentimes try to find meaning in. Isn't that true? That's the story of King Solomon. He had everything his and our culture tells us, told him what to pursue. Yet everything was meaningless. And you know what? As I read Ecclesiastes, I see a deeply depressed man. And as I think of this, I cannot think of a worse state of mind to exist in than to come to the conclusion that everything you've put your passion and your heart into, everything that you have pursued wholeheartedly, led to meaninglessness. I can't can't think of a worse state to be in. And before we continue and see where this led to in Solomon's life, I want to share with you now the story of somebody at K2 that has a a similar story, but set in our times today. Now granted, he's no king and no prince, but he is Michael White, and this is his story. Why don't you watch the screen, please? My dad was an army officer, And so I grew up in a military family, and we moved around a lot pretty much every year. We went to church every Sunday. We went to Sunday school. We read the Christmas story once a year, and that's pretty much it. We were cultural Christians, I guess. I answered an altar call one Sunday uh, when I was 13. I read the Bible the next year, the whole thing five chapters a night and I you know kind of kept going to church and I just kind of went on through high school and then went off to went off to college I didn't actively stop thinking about God or you know was I just 
didn't have time for it anymore. There's always something else, you know, some other distraction to pursue or some other, some other short-term goal, worldly, earthly, you know, goal to try to, you know, that you had to pour all of your time and effort into and there just really wasn't any time for God. I got out of college after, I mean, four years altogether and uh, I did well and then I went to medical school and that was four years and then after that I went in, you know, into a residency. The whole profession wasn't a very good match for me but, you know, I, it seemed like it was going to be lucrative so that was good enough. Um, you know, who cares whether you hate it or not as long as, you know, as long as it as long as you make a lot of money, I mean, that's really the only thing that counts, right? If money and things during the 90s could have could make you happy, then I should have been the happiest guy in town. I mean, I, you know, I had, I had, you know, I had a lot of stuff. I, 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 and it just, and the more stuff I accumulated, the more miserable I got. Um, and so, I mean, I finally kind of made the connection, you know, this is really not working. This money thing um, is not working so much. So it's got to be the job. So I'll get rid of that and, and maybe the location. So I get rid of that, those two things, go somewhere else, try to pursue what, you know, what I'd always kind of considered as my dream. And then everything will be okay. So I moved to New York and uh, got involved in film and drama, acting, screenwriting, directing, and I gave it seven years. It didn't really work out. So I decided to open my own business. I spent uh, about a year planning and, you know, and constructing a basically a boutique medical practice that I that I was gonna that I was gonna open in New York. The initial bu business model is based on hotel occupancy and um, kind of providing urgent care service to hotel you know to out of town guests so that they don't have to go to the emergency room. So I open this. So I open this business one day at about a quarter till eight in the morning. My parents are there. I, you know, I'm like, the 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 place is built out. I've got all the stuff. I, you know, I've 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 invested like every cent that I have um, in savings and what have you in this thing. Fifteen minutes later, I get a call from my sister. She says, uh, uh, Mike, a plane just flew into Building Two of the World Trade Center. I just felt like I'd been hit in the stomach with a baseball bat. I do, not because, I mean, you know, the hotel occupancy goes from 100% to 10% overnight. Just everybody's gone. So the business is on its way to failing. And then I find out that my mother has pancreatic cancer. So, so you got 9-11, the business failing. Now my mother has terminal cancer and then the business fails and bankruptcy and now I'm leaving New York to go and care for my dying mother. And I just, 
I mean, I just completely, I had a breakdown, basically. I mean, I was practically catatonic. I couldn't leave, I, you know, it was depression, I guess, uh, but I couldn't do anything. Somehow in there, I managed to meet my wife and get married. So we move here and to be, to be near family. We lived with my uncle, um, my aunt and uncle, for like a year after we moved here. Um, and this is still when I, I was basically not, just not functional. So I'm not looking to go to church, but my wife wants to go to church and she wants me to come with her. I agree to go to church with her. And this, so we come to K2, Redbox in January of 2009. And, you know, we kept coming back. I remember I came, and this is after, I don't know, it was probably, so after a couple of months, this is in like March, I think, of last year, I remember just saying, not out loud, I mean, in, in during worship or something, that, you know, I just, <laughs> I just can't, I can't do it anymore. I just can't, I can't go on like this. Jesus, can you just, you know, can you do it for me? And yes, he could, actually. After 30 years of trying absolutely, I mean, literally everything, almost everything that you could think of in the way of worldly pursuits or different spiritual so-called pursuits. I mean, I tried everything and none of it worked except this one thing is the only thing that works in my experience. It's not enough to have everything materially. That doesn't do anything for you on the inside, which is the part that, you, you know, doesn't do anything for your soul or your spirit, which is ultimately what, you know, what people are, are what at least for me, what I'm looking for is a spiritual meaning and a spiritual purpose, um, which you can't get that in the physical world. It turns out that I had it right when I was 13. Jesus, he's the purpose. It was, it was Jesus all along. Wow. Thanks for sharing that, Michael. A lot of parallels on there. You know, when uh, if he hadn't been catatonic, he probably would have written a book just like Ecclesiastes. Everything he had tried was meaningless. This search for meaning in all these different areas, spiritually and, and, and physically, economically. And what did he come away with? No meaning. And what does that lead to? Despair. Despair and depression. I love how he, how he put that. He said what we really need, and I'm paraphrasing, is, is spiritual meaning. And you can't find that in, in earthly stuff. Until he found that true freedom. And I think that's really what we're looking for, isn't it? It's this, this freedom from stuff. Until he found that freedom... Not in the pursuit of more stuff, in the pursuit of more pleasure or more wealth, but in putting his dependence on one person. And that was Jesus. And I loved how he put that. That's the only thing that's worked. 
Do you know that's what the Bible tells us? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. In Matthew 16, verse 26, it says, who, who the Son sets free, he is free indeed. Who the, when the Son, when Jesus sets you free, you are free indeed. And today, actually the band can come up. Today, what are we celebrating? Independence Day, right? It's Independence Day. It's great. It, it celebrates the independence of this nation from, from the Brits, <laughs> which we beat 4-1 last week. But, <laughs> but he, you, know, you know why? You know, obviously, you guys know the history. You know why the pilgrims initially came here? They came to live free. Free to do what? free to live out their relationship with Jesus in a way that wasn't controlled. That's the origin of this nation. And you see, I, as an outsider who comes to the United States, you know what value is very clearly the number one value of you as a country? It's freedom. It's very clear. If you come and say, freedom is what the United States values. That's why we celebrate Independence Day. The problem is with our definition of freedom. Our definition of freedom is independence. That's what we want to be. We want to be independent individually, right? And you know, politically and economically, that's true. Independence is freedom. But what did he just say? Our real need is not outward. It's not political and economical. What's our real need? Our real need is spiritual. It's freedom of the soul. And I will tell you, this definition of freedom doesn't work for the soul. As much as we celebrate Independence Day, you will only find freedom for your soul if you have a personal Dependence Day. A day where you put your dependence on Jesus alone. And I want to encourage you, if you if you are still, if you find yourself where you resonate with Ecclesiastes, where you resonate with Solomon, where you identify with Michael and his, his search and his state of almost giving up of, of meaninglessness, I want to urge you to today on Independence Day 2010, consider making this your dependence day on Jesus and putting your life into his hands and trust him with your life and if you do that I can guarantee because the Bible guarantees it that he will take control of your life as he has of Michael's and as he has of mine and many others of you so would you consider making today your dependence day on Jesus